Hello, this is James Rudd, and welcome to this episode of The Heart Podcast, which is all about hypertension. Uh, In this episode, I have a long discussion with Professor Melvin Lobo from Barts Hospital in London in the UK. Melvin is a recognized world expert in hypertension and has led on many of the studies of drugs and devices in this area. He's published with uh, co-authors a comprehensive Education in Heart article all about hypertension. And we talk about the diagnosis of hypertension, uh, the pitfalls for starting therapies, side effects of therapies, the use of multiple therapies, particularly to start with rather than just a single therapy, and also the uh, situation for uh, devices where we sit now in the post-renal denovation trial, simplicity trial era. We talk about ongoing trials of that technology and other device technologies that uh, may affect our practice over the next five to ten years. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today on the Heart Podcast by Professor Melvin Lobo. Uh, Melvin, could you tell the Heart audience uh, what it is you do and where you work? Thank you, James. I'm a cardiovascular physician based in the Barts Heart Centre, which is part of the St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London under the umbrella of the Barts Health NHS Trust. And there I direct the Barts uh, Blood Pressure Clinical Service, in which we see patients with all manner of blood pressure disorders, including a large proportion with hypertension, high blood pressure, those with low blood pressure and variable blood pressure, and those with um, unusual circulatory instability due to dysautonomia. And you wrote a very comprehensive Education in Heart article in the middle of last year, uh, Melvin, which uh, we're going to discuss today. And we're going to broaden out that discussion really into talking about the uh, latest thinking in hypertension, uh, latest drugs, and perhaps some device therapy. But perhaps we can go right back to the beginning. And could you tell us how big an issue uh, hypertension is uh, worldwide right now? How common is this disease? Uh, this is very important because it's really quite impressive how highly prevalent hypertension is globally. We currently estimate there to be 1.13 billion people with high blood pressure and that we are heading towards a global pre- prevalence of 1.5 billion by 2025. So this is a very highly common uh, diagnosis, the commonest long-term condition globally. And roughly uh, around the world, we're seeing 20 to 25% of men and women with hypertension. And the worrying fact is that in the emerging market economies, uh, these um, Middle Eastern countries, China, India, uh, we're now seeing uh, increasing uh, incidence of hypertension so that the prevalence overall is going to be much higher there. Uh, than in the Western uh, European economies. And why is high blood pressure so important? Why is it important that we treat this? High blood pressure is recognized as the number one risk factor for cardiovascular disease and is highly associated with stroke, heart attack, and renal impairment. Uh, We know that if we treat blood pressure successfully, we substantially reduce the risk of cardiovascular events and save lives as well and therefore there is everything to play for when it comes to treating hypertension. And Melvin there's been some debate in the literature and also between the various uh, learned societies as to the level of how you define hypertension. 
Can you talk a little bit about that and where we are, particularly in the UK right now, with where the cutoff for uh, investigation and perhaps commencing treatment lies? This is a very interesting uh, point because, as you um, comment, there is quite a lot of global difference in how guidelines have been um, confirmed and made up with, around, with a view to both thresholds for a, a diagnosis of hypertension and uh, treatment thresholds as well. We're on the cusp of having new guidance from NICE probably towards the end of 2019 or possibly early 2020. And at the moment, I'm very strongly in favor of the most recent European Society of Cardiology and European Society of Hypertension combined guideline, which I think took a very pragmatic view on hypertension uh, diagnosis and didn't actually change the thresholds for a diagnosis of hypertension from those that were used before, which kept life uh, perhaps a little bit simpler. So using uh, office blood pressure of greater than or equal to 140 over 90 millimeters of mercury. Uh, however, they have made some adjustments to the ideal treatment um, targets for hypertension and importantly have also not just stated a lower systolic blood pressure target, but have also invoked a uh, range for diastolic BP targets as well. But right now, 140 over 90 seems to be a reasonable uh, number to start recommending ambulatory testing or home blood pressure testing. Is that right? Correct. And and that's uh, very important to say that a single static measurement of blood pressure in the doctor's office or at a medical encounter for any other reason should not necessarily trigger a diagnosis of hypertension because blood pressure is a continuous variable and we see it changing uh, beat to beat, uh, minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day. And what is true blood pressure is an almost impossible question to answer. But what we want to avoid is a high circulatory load, um, which can lead to cardiovascular disease. And therefore, this somewhat arbitrary threshold of 140 over 90, I think is very reasonable. And if this is observed in the doctor's office, then current um, guidelines from both the US and Europe recommend further evaluation now with either ambulatory BP monitoring or home blood pressure monitoring. And there is increasing availability of the technologies that are required for both of these means of measurement now that um, uh, the monitoring uh, devices are much less expensive than in the past. And there's a very clear figure in your review, figure one, uh, which summarizes the guidelines from the British Hypertension Society and and our national uh, board, NICE, um, and that talks about stage one and stage two uh, blood pressure, uh, and these are these are measures taken from ambulatory uh, blood pressure readings. Can you talk a little bit about stage one and stage two hypertension? I think the relevance of those sorts of terms is really to suggest risk levels at which uh, clinicians encountering patients with uh, hypertension can uh, make decisions. But we qualify decision-making for treatment a little bit further in the uh, most recent guidelines with the ability to formally uh, calculate cardiovascular risk using uh, tools such as the uh, QRIS-3 calculator or the Joint British Society's uh, Cardiovascular Risk Calculator. And these thresholds of stage one and stage two hypertension, in my mind, are somewhat arbitrary. Where we stand now with uh, stage 2 hypertension, so greater than 150 over 95 mmHg, uh, has become important because of very recent data indicating that delays in initiating treatment 
for uh, individuals with blood pressure at this level are associated with increased risk of cardiovascular events. And therefore, the idea of waiting indefinitely to start pharmacological treatment for these uh, groups of patients is no longer uh, acceptable. One would have to move a little bit quicker. And you do talk about the non-pharmacological measures uh, in your in your review. Uh, and again, this review will be made uh, free for a few weeks after this podcast drops uh, in a couple of weeks' time. But can we just talk quickly about when we should consider investigating patients for secondary causes of hypertension? You state in the review that this is around 5 to 10% of all cases of hypertension will turn out to have a treatable cause. Are there any sort of clues or hints as to what type of patient is more likely to have a treatable cause? Yes, I think uh, there are some pointers that can help clinicians to decide. Anyone who's really struggling to achieve hypertension control and is taking multiple antihypertensive drugs and in whom you've confirmed that they are adhering to their antihypertensive medication plan, those are the sorts of people um, in whom you might want to suspect uh, secondary causes of hypertension. And the other uh, typical groups of patients for whom secondary hypertension might be more common is those in whom hypertension has onset at an early age. And we use uh, a figure of less than 30 years old, particularly when you're actually initiating antihypertensive drug therapy. We also recommend that people who present with hypertensive emergencies, such as hypertensive heart failure or aortic dissection, get screened for secondary causes of hypertension. And I think another important group is those in whom blood pressure control has been maintained, but then suddenly deteriorates for reasons that aren't clear. And it's important to also recognize that some of the causes of secondary hypertension are not that rare. For instance, obstructive sleep apnea is increasingly recognized as a cause of failure of nocturnal dipping on 24-hour monitoring and resistant hypertension as well. And in patients who are extremely symptomatic with severe obstructive sleep apnea, often treatment of the sleep apnea will lead to significant improvement in the BP control. Another very important group is those with kidney uh, diseases and all stages of chronic kidney disease, CKD, are associated uh, with significant hypertension and hypertension can drive progression of the kidney disease causing deterioration in renal function and accelerating progress uh, to dialysis. Uh, in truth, the other causes of hypertension such as endocrine hypertension, primary aldosteronism, Cushing's pheochromocytoma are really much less uh, common. And uh, the important thing to also bear in mind in individuals who present at a very young age is the possibility of vascular anomalies such as fibromuscular dysplasia of the renal arteries and uh, co-optation of, of the aorta. And it's worth undertaking screening, perhaps with magnetic resonance angiography in these groups of patients to rule out those diagnoses. And once you've made the decision to start treatment, Melvin, which classes of drugs are generally recommended as as first, second, and third line these days? I know things have changed over the last 10 years or so. Yes, I mean, in the article, we have presented the accepted uh, uh, algorithm for hypertension treatment uh, adopted from the NICE CG127 guideline because that was contemporary at the time of writing. And in that guideline, the use of uh, either ACE inhibitors or calcium channel blockers, depending on age and ethnicity, is mandated as step one. So those who are Caucasian less than five, 55 years of age would be recommended uh, to start treatment with ACE inhibition or angiotensin receptor blockade. B 
But if you're over the age of 55 or of black ethnicity, then a calcium channel blocker would be the first line drug. And thereafter, uh, combinations of ACE and calcium channel blocker uh, and thereafter combinations of those two drug classes with a thiazide-like diuretic. But I think um, it's very nice to look at the European uh, Society of Cardiology uh, guidelines for 2018, which is making um, a slightly more patient-centric statement by recommending that patients are uh, often commenced on single pill combinations that contain more than one active ingredient. And you could be started on uh, monotherapy if the hypertension is mild, but if the hypertension is more uh, significant, you could be started on a single pill that contains two or three active drugs, knowing that the efficacy of those agents is more than additive and therefore should get people to target without the need for a very substantial pill burden. Yeah, there was something interesting I noticed that uh, I wasn't aware of, that there's some evidence you state uh, that starting with two agents uh, rather than a single agent seems to uh, give not only better initial control of blood pressure, but may have uh, longer-term prognostic effects. Is that is that what you're discussing there or hinting at there? Yeah, it is. And it's, it's um, critical that uh, doctors who treat patients with high blood pressure recognize that adherence to the medication plan is not guaranteed. Uh, what has become increasingly clear with research from the recent uh, past is that the more tablets people are prescribed for a long-term condition such as high blood pressure, uh, the more likely they are to not be taking them in a fully uh, adherent fashion. And we see rates of non-adherence up to 70 or 80% in people prescribed five or more tablets for hypertension. And the truth is, it's not just uh, an asymptomatic disorder that, uh, such as high blood pressure that is associated with non-adherence. Even when the stakes are very high, such as uh, individuals with heart failure or individuals with transplants, those um, groups of patients are recognized to have non-adherence to their uh, long-term medication plans. And this can result in admission to hospital with heart failure exacerbation or graft um, uh, rejection in the case of the transplant patients. And so the whole world of prescribing in long-term conditions, and in particular hypertension, which is so prevalent, is now moving towards a more patient-centric approach. We have uh, recognized that people don't really want to take pills lifelong for an asymptomatic disorder, even if they are at risk of cardiovascular disease. And they certainly don't want to take three, four or five pills uh, for that in that setting either. And so if we can make life a little bit more simple for them by prescribing sim single pill combinations, that, that can help a great deal. And there's good evidence that that does improve uh, adherence uh, in the medium term, although we don't have any real long term data for this. And there are there's a nice table in your review uh, which goes through the targets we should be aiming for in various different patient groups. I won't, I won't get you to talk about that here because it's quite complex, but again, it'll be made free. But just talking about uh, where you see the future of this field, uh, Melvin, over the next five to ten years, uh, you mentioned that the appetite of the pharma companies for coming up with new drugs for hypertension seems to be quite low. Uh, are there any new uh, treatments on the horizon that you're aware of at all, or are we doing okay with what we've got if we could perhaps improve patient compliance? Yes, and so um, the two very exciting areas in terms of future direction for me are firstly around uh, diagnostics in uh, hypertension, and then secondly around therapy of hypertension with non-drug approaches that may provide perhaps uh, 
a potential cure for hypertension, although it's a little bit early to say that based upon current data. But if I just focus on diagnostics, uh, what's uh, become very interesting from research that's only been published in the last year or so is that conventional cuff-based measurement of blood pressure with either mercury sphygmomanometer or digital automated monitors is fundamentally inaccurate. And it's important uh, to recognize uh, that uh, these devices lead to under-reading of systolic blood pressure by up to 8 millimeters of mercury, over-reading of diastolic uh, blood pressure by 5 or 6 millimeters of mercury, uh, alteration in mean arterial pressure and reduction in pulse pressure as a result of the inaccuracy. And in one research paper, the authors uh, concluded that with the current inaccuracy uh, of devices, uh, with only 33% um, of the devices being tested, uh, leading to a, an accurate diagnosis of hypertension, you might lead to reclassifying hypertension status in as many as 48 million people from the USA. And so we have a major issue with accuracy of BP measurement. And I'm very excited to be now a little bit more involved in the field of hypertension diagnostics, blood pressure measurement using various uh, different devices. And we've been trialing uh, one or two of these recently and hopefully we'll be publishing some interesting data in the coming months. But certainly um, moving away from cuff-based measurement, I think, has to be the future, particularly for things like 24-hour ambulatory BP monitoring, which patients really find very um, obtrusive to have a cuff on for 24 hours. It disturbs them during the daytime when they're in meetings and disturbs them at nighttime when they're in bed trying to sleep. So that's one major area around diagnostics where I think innovation is around the corner and particularly in an era where we're seeing a lot more in the way of wearable devices and uh, remote censoring and telemedicine. Uh, I think the time is um, well come for high blood pressure to be managed in this way. And then the second theme of uh, novel therapies for hypertension, well, I've been heavily involved for the past decade in non-drug approaches to treat uh, high blood pressure, mainly because we were struggling to control hypertension in some of our complex patients in the Bart's BP clinic. And what we uh, started working with was technologies such as uh, renal sympathectomy via renal deformation, which can be achieved either through radiofrequency or ultrasound uh, measures that involve catheters being passed uh, from a femoral approach into the renal arteries and deploying energy across the renal artery to achieve the renal sympathectomy. We now have some very uh, exciting proof of concept data from several different uh, studies that have been published in high-impact journals such as The Lancet, indicating that these therapies do indeed work to control blood pressure um, in highly controlled uh, settings uh, of a randomized controlled trial with an active sham uh, procedure. And therefore, um, we're now gearing up for uh, more second generation and pivotal studies with these technologies to try and really understand what their role may be in uh, medium to long-term control of hypertension um, and whether or not these can be offered as alternatives to pharmacotherapy. There are some other device treatments of hypertension that are also um, under investigation, including carotid um, bowel reflex activation therapy, endovascular um, uh, bowel reflex amplification therapy using a stent, uh, a central iliac uh, arteriovenous coupler, and we refer to these in the article, and there is a review article uh, that is also referred to that was uh, published uh, with open access in European Journal of uh, European Heart Journal. And so um, your listeners will be able to investigate this further. I think my conclusions about the field of device therapy of hypertension are 
twofold. One, their place in current treatment of hypertension is certainly not secure and they cannot be used as a means to uh, avoid pharmacotherapy as yet. They just require further investigation in clinical trials. But secondly, um, they are teaching us a lot about the pathophysiology of hypertension. And if you think about the device treatment that targets, say, the renal nerves or targets the carotid barrier reflex, it's a very clean uh, procedure to undertake as opposed to a drug which has to be absorbed, ingested, and has uh, action at multiple sites and different targets around the body as, as well as causing side effects. And so device therapy of hypertension, I think, is showing us a way to interrogate the pathophysiology of hypertension, which uh, is shedding light upon control mechanisms for high blood pressure that have not had much in the way of exposure in the past. No, that's a very interesting and, and helpful overview. I guess my only question is, the audience will probably ask as well, is in terms of the renal denovation and the, the simplicity trial, are you saying that, that the results of that trial and, uh, were not clear-cut and that there is uh, scope for still using this procedure in, in certain patient populations? Yeah, so the simplicity study, which was um, uh, published in 2014 in the New England Journal of Medicine, led to a uh, complete uh, vault fast in terms of the development of renal denervation as a technology for hypertension. As you know, this was a randomized controlled trial in which the uh, therapy was found not to be effective in comparison to a sham limb, although both the therapy and the sham limb saw very substantial blood pressure drops um, compared to the baseline. And it seems that there are a number of reasons uh, that this study uh, turned out with this result. And a lot of those were uh, actually stem from uh, rather poor quality trial uh, execution. And perhaps um, we've learned a lot from both the design and execution of that study that has informed the subsequent uh, clinical trials that have been, I think, much more rigorous and from which we can um, say that now renal denervation does appear to have a future and appears to be back on track again. Brilliant. Okay, well, I'll certainly add the European Heart Journal PDF to the show notes so people can see that. It, as you say, it's a very comprehensive overview of, of, of non-drug therapy for hypertension. And I'd like to thank you very much indeed, Professor Lobo, for joining me today and for updating us all on uh, the state of play of hypertension in uh, 2019. Thank you very much, James. Thank you.